Disciples Church is a church plant in Canyon, Texas. We are a church without walls that is focused on evangelism and discipleship. We believe that we are saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, and are on mission with Jesus. Join us as we make disciples verse by verse. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to try to answer the question, whose responsibility is it to share the gospel? Is it the pastor's responsibility or is it all of the church's responsibility? Um, I find this very interesting. In the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus said, um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And I remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Um, I do believe that that text is clear, that we're all called to go share the gospel, so how come we don't do it? In an article by Joe Carter on the Gospel Coalition, it was called Study, uh, Most Churchgoers Never Share the Gospel. And quoting him, this is what he said. A new study finds that despite feeling comfortable in their ability to effectively communicate the gospel, churchgoers struggle most with sharing Christ with non-Christians. And going on, he said the study was connected by, um, life, or conducted by LifeWay Research that found that 80% of those who attend church one or more times in a month believe they have the personal responsibility to share their faith. Yet despite this conviction, 61% of them have never told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. And, and so from my experience, I think it's even a, a bigger number than that. I don't really find many Christians who know how to share the gospel, and, and I find very few Christians who actually do share the gospel. And so that's what we're going to talk about this um, this afternoon, is we're just looking at how to share the gospel. So before we do that, let's just review our theology a little bit. We want to remember that God is the one who saves. So God saves souls. And we get that from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and Colossians chapter 1, 12 through 14. That's the doctrine of justification. God saves souls. But how does he do that? Like, how does God actually save somebody? Well, God uses the church through evangelism to save souls. And, and we get that from Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. So God saves, but he uses the church through evangelism to do it. So is it all of our responsibility are just the pastor. Let me read you a couple texts, and we'll just kind of wrestle with that. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, whenever Jesus first called his disciples, he told them, he said, in, in Matthew four nineteen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so that sure seems that all disciples will have the responsibility to make other disciples. Also in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, have you ever wondered what the Holy Spirit was given for? It was given so that we could go out and make more disciples. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so Paul is speaking to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the entire church. He says the entire church are, and we are all ambassadors for Christ, not just the pastors, not just the apostles, but the entire church is. And one of my favorites, Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15, says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So um, obviously the, the good news has to be carried out. So God saves, but he uses the church through evangelism to do that. So the church must know and must practice evangelism. So how do we actually preach the good news? Well, we can obviously see in Scripture that it's all of our responsibilities, but how do we do it? 
So I've been so I've been sharing the gospel at least weekly over the last decade, close to about 13, 14 years now. And, and listen, I've made lots of mistakes. Uh, I've done it wrong so many times I can't even count. And, and so this afternoon, I just want to share um, a couple of the ways uh, or a couple of mistakes that I made, and maybe it'll help you be more effective in your evangelism. So before we get like before we actually dive into it, though, I want you to remember your theology. Like you are not responsible to save no one. You are just responsible to go out and do evangelism or to share the gospel. But if they get saved, it's because God saved them. It is not up to you to save anybody. Just you know, just remember that God does use the church through evangelism. They have to hear the gospel according to Romans chapter ten, or they can't be saved. So we have to take the gospel out there. But there's also like a major, like another major mistake that I made over the years. And, and listen. You, you need to be good and winsome about how you share the gospel. You can't just beat somebody over the head with the facts. Um, it's not going to convert them. That's why I don't think sh- like, you know, preaching the gospel on the street corner and yelling at people doesn't really work. Like You can't just beat somebody over the head with the facts. Like I found it to be much more effective. Instead of just giving them the facts, we need to help them discover why they need the gospel. And so instead of just yelling and screaming and telling them how awful and, and terrible they are and why they need to get saved, I think it's actually better if you slow down, um, listen to their story first, and then help them discover why they actually need to be saved. So here's what I've been doing um, for a little over a decade. Uh, listen, I don't just give the facts anymore. Instead, I want to lead them down a pathway that helps them discover why they need the gospel. So here's the four steps that I always use in evangelism. This is what I use every time I have I share the gospel with somebody. This is how I do it. Number one, the, the first thing I do is I ask the person I'm talking to, how would they lead someone to Christ? Number two, I share the bad news. Number three, I share the good news. And then number four, I clearly explain what the proper response is to the gospel, which is faith and discipleship. So I always follow that pattern. I always ask them how they would lead someone to Christ. I share the bad news. I share the good news. And then I clearly explain what it means to follow Christ in faith and discipleship. So let's begin with number one. Ask them how they would share someone, you know, how they would lead someone to Christ. I ask, I ask everybody this question. Listen, I'm, I'm talking to, um, I share the gospel more with church people um, than I do with non-church people because what I find is they actually don't know what it means to become a Christian, and so they can't communicate it. They really struggle with it. So I ask, I mean, just about everybody I talk to about the gospel, whether they're churched or not, this is the first question I ask them. I almost always begin by, by telling them, hey, let's pretend that I'm not a Christian and you are, and I want you to share with me how to become a, um, a Christian. And so I will tell them, hey, listen, um, so I'm going to sit here, and I, I'm just, let's pretend that I'm going to die tomorrow, and I need to know what I, what I must do to be saved. You need to tell me. How would you do that? And even if they're not a Christian, I want to know what they think it means to become a Christian. So this is a clarifying question. And so then, you know, I just sit back, and I just wait. Like, I just sit back, and I wait. I say, okay, tell me. Tell me, what does it mean to become a Christian? And, and most of the time, what they say is they'll say things like, well, you should pray, and you should go to church, and you should read your Bible, and you should do all of those things. And I, and I, and I just step back, and I listen, and I ask them, like, how do you know when you've gone to church enough? Or how do you know when you've prayed enough? Or how do you know when you've read your Bible enough? Or how do you know? See, most of the time, what, they're actually, what they actually think it means to become a Christian is they are actually basing their justification on acts of sanctification. And this is especially true with church people most of the time. Like when I ask a church person, what do you have to do to be saved? Most of the time, they're going to give me a bunch of good works, whether they know it or not. They're just going to say, yeah, I think you should do all these things, and those are all good things, but, but that's not how we're saved. We're actually saved by faith alone. And so my first question, I ask them, how would they lead someone to Christ? Because it's a clarifying question. I really want them to understand what it means to be a Christian, and I want them to first discover that they don't know the answer to that question. 
So after I give them a few moments and I make them wrestle with it, and they kind of get to this place where they're like, well, I, I really don't know. I really don't, I really don't know what, how to lead someone to Christ. I, don't, I really don't know what to, t- to tell them. And if I get there, then I know I can go to step number two, which is share the bad news. And so what I do with that is after I've asked them how would they lead someone to Christ, I flip the scenario around and I just say, hey, why don't, why, you, why don't you let me try? Let's pretend that you're not a Christian and let's pretend that I am. And I want to lead you to Christ. I want to show you how I would do that. And if they say yes, that just kind of opens the door and I'm going to jump right on it. So the very first step, or the number, step number two is I'm going to share the bad news with them. So here's the question that I use. Um, anytime I'm going to share the gospel, I do not skip this step. Um, so the question I ask them is, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Again, almost always the people will say yes. Almost, I mean, actually, everybody I've ever asked that question to has said yes. Every time I ask somebody, would you consider yourself to be a good person, they always say yes. And so then I, I step back again and I say, okay, let's see if you're a good person according to God. Let's just wrestle with that for a little minute. Let's, uh, and then I go straight to using the law of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, to show them that they're actually not a good person according to God's standard. See, Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so I, I ask him, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Let's just find out. Um, do you know any of the Ten Commandments? And they'll always give me a couple. And so I'll ask them, well, have you kept them? Like one of the Ten Commandments is you can't tell a lie. How many lies do you think you told? And they'll usually say too many to count. And then I'll say, okay, well, another one of the Ten Commandments is you can't steal anything. Have you ever stolen anything? And sometimes they say, like, no, I've never stolen anything. And then I, and then I assure them that they have. If they've ever had a job, like they absolutely haven't worked as hard as they should have, so they've stolen time and resources from their employer. The, the next thing I say is, like, have you ever used God, God's name in vain? Well, yeah, everybody has. So then I go a step farther and I say, have you ever dishonored your mom or your dad? And, and of course they have. So then I, I go a little bit farther than that and I say, have you ever coveted? One of the laws says we can't covet. That means you can't want something that belongs to somebody else. And everybody's done that. So then I, then I step the game up a little bit farther because I really want to see if they still think they're a good person according to God. So I'll ask them, have they ever, have they ever committed murder? Have they ever killed somebody? And, and they're going to say no, more than likely. And so then I'm going to fold over to the book of Matthew in chapter 5, and I'm just going to show them that even if they haven't murdered somebody, if they've simply been angry with somebody, it's the same sin. And so if they've been angry, it's the same as murder. Therefore, they're guilty of breaking that commandment as well. So then I go a little bit farther, and I say, have you ever um, committed adultery? Like, have you ever cheated on your husband or wife? And if they're not married, they obviously say, no, I'm not married. But the reality is, um, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus said, if you simply look at somebody else with lust, it's the same thing as murder. And so everybody has done that. And so I, I just step back and I say, listen, like, according to your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart who's murdered at heart. You've coveted to use the Lord's name in vain. Like, you've dishonored your mom and your dad. You've, you've done so many things wrong so many times, just like I have. Like, would you consider yourself to be a good person now in the sight of God? And so I want to use the law to show them their need for a Savior. I'm trying to lead them down this path to show them why they need to be saved. And so if they say, if their eyes are kind of open to it, and I say, listen, listen, God is a holy God, and he's just, and he's going he's gonna to judge us based on the Ten Commandments. That's what he's going to do. He's going to judge us based on the law. So based on his law, are you actually innocent or guilty? Are you a good person according to him or a bad person? And listen, we're all guilty. We're all bad. And, and so I explain that to them. Listen, the, the law reveals the bad news to us. It shows us our true spiritual condition. And so if, if God were to judge us based on the law, are we innocent or guilty? Well, we're all guilty. Like you and I both are guilty. And if they get to this point, if they start understanding this, 
then the good news is going to make sense to them. But if they still don't think they're that bad of a person, then the good news actually doesn't make any sense to them. It's like trying to tell somebody that they need to take a cancer treatment and they don't even believe they have cancer. Like if I walked up to somebody and I said, listen, I got this really awesome radiation therapy that I want you to take. It's going to make you really sick. It's going to make your hair fall out. Your teeth are going to fall out. You're going to lose a bunch of weight. You're going to throw up every day. Your life's going to be horrible. Um, Take it. They're never going to take it. But but if I step back and I, and I step in front of them and I say, listen, I just got the biopsy back from the doctor and the results are in, like you have stage four cancer and you're going to die in six months if you don't take this therapy, if you don't take this cancer treatment, at least at that point they would consider taking the treatment. And, and the gospel is, is very much the same way. Nobody's going to swallow the pill of the gospel unless they first understand why they need it. So if they get to that point and I see they're kind of breaking over their sin, then I know their heart is ready to receive the gospel. So at that point, if they can say, yeah, I'm guilty and yeah, God is just and I see that God must punish me, then I'm going to ask them another question. And here's number three. You got to share the good news. Here's the question I use. Do you know anybody who's never done anything wrong? Like, do you know anybody who could take the Ten Commandments and pass that test perfectly? Well, there's only one. It's Jesus. You see, if I asked Jesus if he never lied, he would say, no, I've never lied. If I said, Jesus, have you ever stolen anything? He'd say, no. And I'd say, Jesus, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? No. Like, Jesus, have you ever been angry without a righteous cause? No. Jesus, have you ever lusted? Like, you ever looked at a woman with lust? And he's going to say, no. And I'm like, Jesus, have you ever been, like, coveted or wanted something that didn't belong to you? And he's going to say, no. And I'm going to say, Jesus, have you ever broken the Sabbath? No. Like, he's never done anything wrong. And see, that's what actually, that's what actually the good news means. Like, on the cross, like, Jesus not only died for our sins, but he also gave us his righteousness. You see, the sinner on the cross actually trades places with Jesus. Jesus gets what you deserve, and you get what he earned. Like on the cross, Jesus not only you know, died to pay the penalty for your sins, but he also gave you 30 years of perfect righteousness. And so that means for those who have faith in Christ, whenever God looks at you, he actually doesn't see anything that you've done wrong. Like what he actually sees is the perfection of Jesus. It would be like Jesus standing in front of you, and whenever God looks at you, all he sees is Jesus. That's why God is no longer angry over your sin. And so we get that from the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then probably my favorite verse in all, all of the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's good news. That's really good news. And so Jesus gets all of our sin and we get all of his righteousness, but that good news demands a response. Listen, like it's not enough for me to tell you about the cancer treatment that can save your life. You must take the pill. And so now at this point, if they're starting to really wrestle with and wrestle with this and they're starting to get this, then I'm just going to clearly, very clearly move into step number four, which is clearly explain the proper response, which is faith and discipleship. You see, a lot of people just want to talk about what it means to be saved, but nobody really wants to talk about what it means to be discipled. And in, in, in Matthew chapter 28, what Jesus actually said is he said, go therefore and make disciples. He didn't just say, go out there and make sure everybody gets saved. That's not what he said. He said, go make disciples. And so how do we do that? Well, let's start with faith first. In, in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 25, it says this, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are all justified by grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what does it mean to have faith? 
And I really want the person that I'm talking to wrestle with this. If I said right now to you, what does it mean to have faith? What would you say? Well, you see, the faith that Romans chapter 3 is actually talking about is actually better described with a word called trust. And so the word, the word faith in Jesus actually means trust in Jesus, and so this is what it means. Do you trust that you are absolutely sinful? Do you see that? And then do you trust that Jesus was absolutely perfect? And do you trust that what he did on the cross was sufficient to save you? Meaning he exchanged his, his righteousness for your sin. God accepted his payment. And, and so whenever he died, he rose from the grave. And since he rose from the grave, we can, ch- we can trust that the work that he did is sufficient to save us. So trusting in him or having faith in him simply means you fully, without reservation, completely trust in him. So when a person has faith, it means that he or she believes that Jesus is God. And they, and they believe that Jesus has done what he said he did, meaning he lived a perfect life, he died to sinner's death, and he rose from the grave. If they get this, that is the kind of faith that saves someone. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is born of God. And that's in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. So probably the most abused um, scripture in all of the Bible is John three sixteen. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him or trusts in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The key is belief. The proper response to the gospel is you must believe that you are sinful and that he is completely righteous. And the work that he did on the cross for us exchanges our sin for his righteousness, and that's how we actually get saved. Without faith, uh, we remain in sin, and we can't be accepted by God, no matter how much you try. No matter how much you read your Bible or go to church or pray or how many good things you do, you can never be given, you will never be given eternal life without just trusting in Christ. It all starts with trusting in Christ alone. So to have faith in Jesus also means that you have to reject all other ways of salvation. It's not Jesus plus reading your Bible that gets you saved, or it's not Jesus plus going to church that gets you saved. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing is what actually saves you. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven given to mankind to which we must be saved. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is exclusive. That means it's Jesus alone. In John 14, verse 6, it says Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And so then I would just simply ask the person that I'm sharing the gospel with, which, are you ready to, to do that? Do you want to trust in him alone? And listen, there's no special prayer. There's no asking Jesus into your heart. There's none of that kind of stuff. It's just a clear explanation of what it means to trust in Jesus alone. And then I'll usually pray with them, and, and, and I'll explain to them over and over and over as many times as it takes. It's Jesus plus nothing that gets you saved. But if you are saved, then the proper response to that salvation is discipleship. So how do we disciple somebody? Well, that's going to be our next lesson. So we're going to look at that um, next time. This, this time we're just simply looking at how God saves well, God saves by using the church through evangelism. We get that from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. So here's my four steps again. The first thing I always do is I always want to ask somebody, hey, listen, let's pretend that you're a Christian and I'm not one. How would you lead me to Christ? The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to share the bad news with them. I'm going to walk them through the Ten Commandments and just show them how they've broken them and how I've broken them and how because of that we're all guilty. Um, then I'm going to share the gospel with them. Step number three, I'm going to share the good news. I'm going to show them that Christ not only died to save us from our sins, but he also gave us his righteousness, meaning we're represented by 30 years of perfect righteousness. And then I'm going to clearly explain to them what it means to trust in Christ alone. And then... If we get there, I'm not just going to abandon them and leave them on their own. That would be like having a baby and then throwing the baby a bunch of diapers and formula and saying, take care of yourself. That's not how it actually works. We actually have to take them through discipleship. And so next week, we'll look at discipleship. 
Thank you for listening to this message. If you would like to know more about Jesus, the gospel, discipleship, or Disciples Church, you can contact me at ChristopherHogue at Yahoo.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-H-O-G-U-E at Yahoo.com. Church, we have been sent into the world to make disciples. Let's go make disciples.